Welcome to Musically Challenged, your weekly helping of random music conversations based on whatever topic the guys choose. Their goal is to entertain and inform you on a variety of themes. This podcast is an expression of their lifelong love and commitment to music. Simply stated, music is life. This show may include adult themes and language. Once again, welcome to Musically Challenged. Here are your hosts, Chad and Lou. Welcome to episode 50 of Musically Challenged, your weekly helping of random music conversation based on pretty much whatever topic we want. I'm your host, Lou Schwalbach, and along with me, as always, is Chad Knight. Good afternoon, sir. Hello, sir. Now, hey, check this out. We are on location and kicking off the new year at Evercon 2018. Woohoo! Now, I don't know about you, but I am loving this. Oh, God, yes. You know, being around so much gaming and other sort of coolosity, and yes, I did just make up that wait, word. Wait, wait, wait. Coolosity? Yes, it is the okay. awesomeness and you... the act of being... Cool. Okay, so you're going to define it as well? I'm sure you were going to ask me to. Well, yes, but you did it before I asked for it. <laughs> See, because I'm reading your mind. Well, It doesn't okay. happen often, so I'm going to take it when I can get it. <laughs> now, it, we're totally in our element here, so figure out while we're here, what better time than now to do an episode about the geeky nerdism as a whole. Shay Geeky. Exactly. Great game by Steve Jackson, by the way. Well, Shay Geek is, not Shay Geeky. Exactly. Well, you are Shay Geeky if you play it. Perhaps. There you go. Now, there's so many different topics that contribute to someone being labeled as a nerd or a geek. For a short list, you can listen to Weird Al's White and Nerdy. Most of it is pretty fantastic, so I think it's pretty high time that we give some love to a few of those tunes and themes. Absolutely. And now, today we'll be talking about music that falls into a variety of categories, such as sci-fi and fantasy, to name a couple, and many more, most of which would fall into the topic of, finger quotes, nerdy and or geeky. So, we're talking movies, TV shows... Uh, just plain old music. We're talking everything. Video, video games. Video games. That could be considered geeky or nerdy. We're going to throw in here. Excellent. Now, the general populace is going to kind of put that in that category, but as everyone who knows us knows, we love that topic. Yeah, absolutely. So today is going to be about letting our dork flag fly for the awesomeness that is being a modern-day nerd. Sounds like a plan to me. So it is time to get your favorite set of polyhedral dice out, put on your Elvin, or if you prefer, Mr. Spock ears. And fire up your homemade lightsaber and get this show started. Okay, so let's 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 check here. I go into my pocket and what do I have? I have a new set of dice, so I have my polyhedrals with me. All right, you know, and I bought a couple sets yesterday actually because what is the phrase? You can never, never have, have enough, enough dice. dice. Now I have to ask you though, is, is it okay if I put on one elf ear on one ear and a Mr. Spock ear on the other ear? It depends on what logo you put on what lapel pin. Oof. So if you're gonna be a science officer on one side, but then put the little elven thing that um, Galadriel gave. I could do that. Just make sure you don't cross it up because then they would just mess people up all the <laughs> So, all right, we're going to get this one started. Let's go ahead and start off with what we always start off with, and that is liquored up. Beer! Exactly. So what would you pick up for us today? Well, we're here at the convention center, and thankfully they sold me beer. You know, they so you? They didn't actually. Okay. <laughs> That's because I have, as I've been told this weekend, I have gray facial hair, and it makes... You've been told this. Have you not looked in the mirror? I know, but it was funny. One of the kids at the convention this weekend, they're like, you've got gray facial hair. And I'm like, yeah. 
It's like, it makes you look so distinguished. And I'm like, I got to go home and shave. You know, I actually get that too because I got a little bit grown in like the Reed Richards thing around my temples. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, you know, we, guys don't look old with gray hair. They look distinguished. <laughs> At least that's what I've been told. Yeah. Yeah. I think they lie to us. I would agree. All right. So we're going to be drinking um, actually a local beer here uh, from Bull Falls Brewery. It's called Marathon Superfine Lager. Now, on the it even can. It says superfine on the. On it the does. Container. It says superfine. But. Anyway, so on the side of the can, it is a 16 fluid ounce can. It's uh, a pint, so 5.1% alcohol by volume. And on the side of the can, it's actually kind of funny. It says, uh, it's a classic American premium lager based on a recipe from the Merton City Brewery Log book from 1954 for Merton Superfine Lager. It's a blast from the past, you know. Oh, yeah, and they even do cans instead of bottles. Yeah, yeah, and because it's eco-friendly, which I'm guessing Marathon Lager, they didn't care back in 50. How is it any more eco-friendly than glass recycling? Um, but that's a whole um, podcast for a whole different time. I'm not a goddamn scientist. I don't know. <laughs> All right. So All right, let's, let's crack these things open and see what we got. All right. And we're not going to clink cans because you we, can't hear we it We have anyway. found on other episodes it doesn't pay. All right. Here we go. <laughs> A little better. I like that. Um, yeah, I'm going to drink the rest of this. <laughs> oh, I hope so. Um, it's not bad. It seems a little bit... Uh, it hangs on. It's, yeah, there's definitely a hop bite on the on the back end. It's a little chewy. I wouldn't call it chewy, but it, it's definitely got a bitter um, hops on the back, which I'm not usually a big fan of, but for some reason this is sitting well. Maybe it's because this is day three of a con and I... It could be. And this, tired? This, and it's still hanging on. This ain't letting go. I mean, this is... No, I kind of like it. I like... I, well, I like bitter beers, too. And I like more bitter than you do. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I kind of like it. I'm going to I'm gonna give this a thumbs up. I'm going to give it a thumbs down. I'm not a fan. Okay. Fair enough. I can't even give this one a bar. That's, that's fair enough. Well, you know, so here we are. You know what time it is? Yes, I do. What time is it? It is trivia time. It is. And this is the part of the show where Lou asked me a question and I either sound like I'm extremely brilliant or horribly stupid. So we go menso or moron. <laughs> <laughs> so what is my standing as of right now? You are currently sitting at 11 and 8. So 11, 4, 8 against. Okay. So I'm still over 500%. We're you good. You are indeed. So let's go ahead and start with this one here. Now, according to the American Film Institute, 100 years of film scores... Which John Williams score was ranked as the greatest American film score of all time? Funny you should ask that, because I actually know this. It Oh, we're going to answer at the end of the show, right? If you want to, yes. Yeah, let's do it at the end of the show like we right, always so do. Let's read not, the question one more time? Yeah, let, let, I mean, we can let people out there listening think about it. All right, and that's according to the AFI, American Film Institute, 100 Years of Film Scores. Which, Is that what AFI stands for? It does indeed. Oh, okay. Which John Williams score was ranked as the greatest American film score of all time? All so right. We, it sounds like Chad might be 12 and 8 by the end of this, but we'll find out. Well, I'm guessing he probably did some research on this, so he probably already knows. I, I did, and, um, you know, why don't you kick this one off? All right, I will do that. So the first one that I've got here, and this is going to be from one of my favorite movies. It's Back to the Future by Alan Silvestri. Now, 88 miles per hour, DeLoreans, 1.21 gigawatts. If these terms don't evoke the memory of Marty McFly and Doc Brown, I have no idea what would. I agree. This It's a classic movie from the 80s I'm sure that most people have seen. And if not, the younger generations have to see this movie. Now, I have a question for you. Have you ever seen a DeLorean all mocked out like that? 
In real life, no. I have, and it's really it was amazing. You open up the door, you know, they had the doors open. It was at a car the show. Bell wings, yeah. Yep, they had the doll, the doll, and and it was the weirdest thing that actually touched one of those because it was like it felt different than a normal car because well, it's, it's made stainless out of steel. stainless steel, right? But to see like the flux capacitor in there and stuff, and the and the he had the dash all done out. It was it was actually really fucking cool. I think being tricked out, the car costs like two hundred fifty thousand yeah. dollars. It is ridiculously expensive. Now this timeless and the pun was intended there. Okay. Um, film trilogy needed a sweeping score, and Sylvester did it justice. He has had his hand in sci-fi genre for a long time. His first of many collaborations with Robert Zemeckis was uh, was Romancing the Stone in 1983. And then when Zemeckis determined it was time to be doing Back to the Future, Sylvester was at the top of a short list of composers that were even considered. That makes complete sense to me. Now, since then, he's worked on many notable projects, such as Zemeckis' Who Framed Roger Rabbit and Forrest Gump, Predator, Young Guns 2, and a little movie called The Avengers. Let's see, have I heard of that one? No, and I'm not talking about that crappy Uma Thurman one based on the TV show from the 60s, (laughs) but rather the 2012 Joss Whedon blockbuster film. All right. Now... Let's go ahead and take a quick listen to Back to the Future Overture by Alan Silvestri. All right. So now, the score works for the film and just sounds amazing. It brings the listener back to a simpler time, and it works pretty good at evoking emotions. I love the whole soundtrack from this all the way to when, finger quotes, Marty McFly did the Johnny B. Good song, which, classic part of the movie. Now, he lip-synced that, right? He did. It was somebody else singing it, but he did a good job doing it. Yeah, it wasn't bad. Um, Now... It's just a nostalgic happiness. It's it's a sci-fi movie. It's a great sci-fi movie. Um, the trilogy is absolutely worth watching, and everybody has their different favorite on which movie they like the best. Um, I don't know what yours would be. I the per, the first one always holds a special spot. It does. The first one's in, very good. The second one's a piece of garbage, and the third one is actually my favorite one. I like the soundtrack from the third one the best, but honestly, the second one with the future I really enjoyed. Now, see, I like the, I like the old west twist on it in the third one but you're a young guns fan too though i am so that would make sense now this is just one of my favorites so what are you thinking well you know i love this i mean marty mcfly doc brown they make they make for the movie i mean they really make the movie there you got biff and you got the other guys and the dad which is hilarious i don't think they could have cast it any better no i don't think they could have the and you know of course the whole idea of time travel is is very sexy the whole idea of being able to go through our time and see other times and places. And I don't mean sexy as in ooh-la-la. I mean sexy as in it's just... It, uh, it, it which, explains. ironically enough, was the... Which, uh, ooh-la-la was the magazine that, that Marty was reading in 55. Was it? Yes, it was. Oh, my God. Okay. This is why I'm the movie trivia person <laughs> of the two of us. But, but, yes, no, I understand. It's There's just something... I, it's, there's a good, there's no other way to put it. You're right. Sexy about time travel because yeah. we don't know enough about it. Right. Exactly. And we don't know. We know it is possible to time travel forward if you use space and time and or just sit there and don't do anything. Hey, I'm in the future. Well, yes, but I mean they have they have proven through science that you can actually 
go out into space and because time is different there, when you come back, you could be out for 50 years, you come back, it's been 300 years on Earth mm-hmm. kind of thing. You know, So you can do that kind of stuff, but it's only forward. There's nothing about going backwards, which is you know, interesting to me. But let's ask our audience, who out there, if you had the chance, could get into a DeLorean right now and go either way, forward or back, who wants to do time travel? I do. Me. See, we got we got a couple people in the audience. It's not a huge it's not a huge turnout, but we are thankful for the people that did come. Absolutely, thank you very much. And they want to time travel with us. So, you know, what can I say? You know, we talk about how it'd be really easy, but if you remember the movie too, there's so much preparation you have to do as far as making sure you have fuel, plutonium, pl- the right. But honestly, I think the friggin' plutonium again. <laughs> you know, and I have to say, I think one of the biggest things that most people wouldn't realize is money. Oh yeah. Doc had a full briefcase full of different bills from different eras because because you would have to imagine going into 1955 and pulling out a dollar bill with Washington's face on it that said printed in 1995. You get thrown in the pen. Yeah, you know, and it's it's exactly things like that. The first time I watched that movie and I'm like I would have never thought of money. Exactly. Well, you there's know? a lot of stuff you wouldn't think about. And it's actually kind of funny because when he opens up the briefcase when they go into the future, mm-hmm. And all the money's colored and stuff, like the American money's working its way, but like the Japanese yen and all those, they're brightly colored pieces of monetary, uh, you know, paper. And the American money's starting to go that way too. You look at the $100 bill and the $50 mm-hmm. bill and they're starting to get that coloring to them. And I guess, I'm guessing at some point they will slowly work us into one of those bright right. looking money. But uh, so they even took things like that into account. And if I recall, and this is, you can correct me if I'm wrong, and obviously Nikki out there is nodding her head because she'll probably remember this too. Didn't they actually call the ending of the World Series that, that I think it was the, the Florida team wins or whatever, and there yep. wasn't a Florida team at the time, but right. then they came out with the Marlins who did end up winning in, what was it, 97? Something like that. Or something like that. And then they called for the Cubs to win. And it was only off by a year, and the Cubs right. won the pennant. Yeah, there's a lot of modern shows that do that. The Simpsons is one of them that they've called so much stuff in yeah. the future that's insane. Yeah, absolutely. But that's another topic for another story. Why don't you talk us on with your second one? All right, so my next one, I am going. Your first one. Or my first one, one, I guess. I am going to do another, um, another movie. So we're going to talk Harry Potter now. So I'm talking about the theme of Harry Potter, which was done by John Williams, Mm -hmm. which I didn't know until I started doing the research. But once I listened to it, I'm like, it makes sense. It sounds like a... He's got a style. Yes, absolutely. So the inspired work of John Williams brings out a vibrant sound and an impassioned feel. This music, though it's called Hedwig's theme, really is the theme of the movie, in my opinion. So raise your hand if you've seen Harry Potter. Okay. (laughs) Now, I didn't think I had to, but I leave, still... <laughs> leave them up if you've read the books. Okay. So Multiple every, times? So now... <laughs> Own the soundtracks? No, I don't. No, you don't. There you go. Now... Have the audiobooks. Have ones. Have all the pop figures. <laughs> I'm a fan. Just wait to see if you're done. I am. Okay. Wait. Uh... <laughs> all right. Now, if you love the movie or the books or both, let me hear you. Woo! Yay! Okay, that was pitiful. <laughs> There's only two of us. Don't be a dick about it. <laughs> All right, now, let's take a listen to what, what we've been talking about here.
So John Towner Williams. How's that for a middle name? Towner. I'd probably I, go by T. <laughs> <laughs> is an American composer, conductor, and pianist. With a career spanning over six decades, he has composed some of the most popular and recognizable film scores in cinematic history, including Jaws, the Star Wars series, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Superman the Movie, E.T. the Extraterrestrial, and Indiana Jones series. I know what you almost said. <laughs> the first two Home Alone films and the first two Jurassic Park films. Schindler's List and the first three Harry Potter films. Williams has been associated with director Steven Spielberg since 1974, composing music for all but three of his feature films. Other notable works by Williams include a theme music for the 1984 Summer Olympic Games, NBC Sunday Night Football, it's a song called The Mission, and uh, the theme used by NBC News, and Lost in Space, the television series, and The Land of the Giants, and the incidental music for the first season of Gilligan's Island. So he has done movies, TV, uh, you know, public things like the, the, the Olympics, things like that. So Williams has been, has also composed numerous classical concertos and the other works for, or, or, for orchestral ensembles and solo instruments. From 1980 to 93, he served as the Boston Pops principal conductor and is currently the orchestra's laureate conductor. Williams has won 23 Grammy Awards, seven British Academy Film Awards, five Academy Awards, and four Golden Globe Awards, and a partridge in a pear tree. Does he have to have a separate room in his house for all his awards? It sounds like it. And with 50 Academy Award nominations, Williams is the second most nominated individual after... Here's your trivia question. Who was the most nominated? Oh, I think I actually remember this. I think that's part of one of my other ones, actually, because... Walt Disney. Right. So, do you guys out there have any questions on the song or the composer or anything to do with this piece of music? No, great. Lou, what do you got? And <laughs> one of the other, and I'm just going to pull in, you mentioned a bunch of other things that Williams did. Right. He did Winter Olympics as well, uh, like Bugler's Dream, I think, is the one that's mainly used. Okay. And do you remember the show Amazing Stories? It was on NBC. Yeah. It was almost like a Twilight Zone, but yeah. not really. He did the music for that, too. Oh, okay. And that was one I, I knew right off the, oh, we got a question from the PETA gallery. Um, did he compose any of the music for Pulp Fiction? I don't think so. I don't think he did Pulp Fiction. Uh, we can certainly double check. I know that, um, like, Mr. Lou, the one that was the main one, that was Dick Dale. Okay. And we talked about yep. that on, on surf music. But while he's checking, I'm just going to mention what I thought. And John Williams is the man. I mean, he scored many of the best blockbuster movies of all time. He brought them to life through your ear holes. This is the easiest way to put it. I challenge anyone who's seen these movies to say that they can't hear these themes and picture at least one scene. Like someone plays the Jaws music, you're going to picture at least one scene. All right, got to get another boat, or we need a bigger boat, that's it, um, or something to that effect. It's pretty much impossible to hear this theme and not think of the movie in at least one character. And I don't know about you guys, but when I read the books, I can hear this music in my head as I'm reading it. <laughs> so what did we find out, if anything, yet? Um, what we have found out is I don't believe he did. Uh, the composition was done by Dick Dale's Mayor Salou. And Eno Morricone music. Okay. So um, it does not look like, let's see, Boyce Rice, Allison Anders, Cool and the Gang, Stadler Brothers, The Tornadoes, and it looks like that's about it. Ricky Nelson. 
Uh, Tarantino was pretty good at, at picking kind of out there music, actually. Yeah. Me. So he didn't really do so much composition as he went by actual artists. Um, and in doing that, it would make sense that he would go for somebody who was a little bit out there. I mean, not saying that Dick Dale or Ricky Nelson are out there, but they're not household names as it were. Well, you got to remember where Tarantino started in the in the indie scene, where he wanted to pay as little as he could for the music for his movies. This is true. So I'm guessing, and he's kind of stuck to that throughout his entire career. <laughs> I mean, when you look at the soundtracks, I mean, they had uh, John Travolta actually do a song for the soundtrack. So... You know, he's already paying them to be an actor, so why not get a little more out he of him? He just puts kinda. it in his contract, just says, hey, you know, by the way, here's what we're going to pay you, and you got to sing a song, too. Right. <laughs> Otherwise, you're not in the movie. Oh, well, I guess that's fine. <laughs> so, All right, man, what do you got? All right, my next one is going to be, uh, it's called, the title of the track is Derezd. It's by Daft Punk, and it was in the Tron Legacy soundtrack. Now, when Tron Legacy was announced, there was a collective nerdgasm that was heard around the world. <laughs> Fans of the 1982 original, such as myself, were foaming at the mouth, waiting desperately for the sequel to come out, yet terrified that it would ruin the memories that we fans clung to, just like any movie that they're going to do a sequel of many, many years later. Tron, Le Tron Legacy released in December 17th of 2010, and I went to the movie at midnight because, duh. And it went on to take the top box office spot initially and got praise for the visual effects. It didn't do as well as some would hope, but the soundtrack is and was amazing. Daft Punk did the whole thing. They did a really good job with this, and they just knocked it out of the park. They made it all dark and moody, yet it was electronic and almost cyberpunk in a way. They even actually got to be in the movie as a cameo as a DJ pair at the, uh, the club, I think it's called the End of Line Club, Okay. that... They're wearing their same costume that they normally do, and actually during this particular piece of music that played. Why don't we go ahead and take a quick listen to DeRezd. Now, Daft Punk is composed of Guy Manuel de Homem de Cristo. Bless you. Yeah, exactly. And, and then we've got the other guy, Thomas Bangalter. Okay. They've been making music together since meeting in school in 1993. There was a short-lived indie rock band, and then they went electronically releasing their first studio album, Homework, in 1997, where it went gold. Now... They have continued to release songs and collaborations with other artists, most notably with Pharrell Williams with the song Get Lucky from 2013, which I'm sure everybody knows that song. Releasing Random Access Memories, which won Grammy Awards for Daft Punk and for the song. DeRezd is the 13th track off the Legacy soundtrack and is played during the finger quotes fight scene between Sam Quora and Clue's guards. The scene was superbly choreographed and the music composed just seemed to work perfectly for a high-intense you know, fight scene between the different characters. This is probably one of the best pieces of music in the soundtrack, and while I am still a huge fan of the original movie and Wendy Carlos' soundtrack for that, formerly Walter Carlos, actually, um, there's going to be a place in my heart for this because it's still a Tron movie. Fair enough. I honestly... I think this is great music for what it is. It's for a high... Like you said, a high-energy, futuristic, sci-fi battle scene 
Now, I really enjoy Tron Legacy, but I don't remember enjoying Tron. Now, granted, I haven't seen that movie in well over 20 years. And I don't know. I just – I don't like this type of music to begin with. Okay. But I think it was well used in the movie. I enjoyed the movie, so I guess that gives me a little nerd cred. But as far as most things, I'm just going to agree with you on this one. It's a good piece of music for what it is. And that's about it. All right. So do any of the many millions and millions of Musical.ly Challenge fans have any questions? See what I did there? No, but I just got a cease and desist email from the WWE. <laughs> <laughs> Courtesy copy, Dwayne Johnson. All right, so let's move on to my next one. And I know this is one that there's a little contention about. So you will get to say your piece, but wait until I'm done. I will do so. So Lord of the Rings theme, it's a piece of music immediately garner mental images of the Shire and Hobbits frolicking at play. The backbone to the movie, Lord of the Rings. La-di-da-di-da, frolicking. Hobbits frolicking. Of course hobbits frolic. What else would a hobbit do? They dilly-dally all day long. I thought you were going to be quiet till I was done. Oh, about the music? You didn't say anything about your choice of words. So the backbone to the movie, Lord of the Rings... I might be a little bit biased, as the first time I ever played a Lord of the Rings game, I played a Hobbit. I don't remember a lot about the character or the game, but I do remember the little guy died. He had a rough life, though. We were traversing through Mirkwood, and he was captured by giant spiders as he slept, and the rest of his inept group missed it. I believe he survived that trial, but why don't we go ahead and take a listen to what I consider the theme of Lord of the Rings. Now, I know Lou disagrees with me, and we'll be playing another clip of music in a little bit, but we're going to then take a poll of the audience, and we're going to find out who they agree with, whether it's me or whether it's Lou. And, of course, if you're listening to this not live, feel free to write into us and let us know your thoughts on it as well. So, Howard Leslie Shore is a Canadian composer who is notable for his film scores. He has composed the scores for over 80 films most notably the scores for The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit film trilogies. He won three Academy Awards for his work on the first trilogy, with one being for the original song Into the West, an award he shared with Eurythmics lead vocalist Annie Lennox and writer-producer Fran Walsh, who wrote the lyrics. He is also a consistent collaborator with director David Cronenberg, having scored all but one of his films since 1979. Shore has also composed a few concert works, including one opera, The Fly, Based on the plot of Cronenberg's 1986 film premiered at the Théâtre du Chalat in Paris on July 2, 2008, a short piece fanfare for the Wanamaker Organ and the Philadelphia Orchestra, and a short overture for the Swiss 21st Century Symphony Orchestra. In addition to his three Academy Award wins, Shore has also won three Golden Globe Awards and four Grammy Awards. Well, actually, let's wait on questions until after you do your part. 
All right. Well, and again, as he mentioned before, this is where Chad and I are going to be at odds a little bit. Now, Chad feels that that particular piece that we listened to before is the finger quotes theme. Because that's what it says on the soundtrack. Lord of the Rings theme. That's well, and actually, that's what it says on YouTube. Don't give me that crap. But <laughs> moving, <laughs> moving forward, I feel that a totally different piece gets that distinction, and the piece is called the. I believe it's the Ringo South, and we'll take a quick listen to that one right away. So now this is the piece of music that I personally feel is the finger quotes again theme. And I guess it really does depend on what part of the movie's music that you're really considering. Because both of these are played obviously in the in the music, depending on what part, and perhaps it all depends on what part what part of the movie really resonates with you. You know, perhaps when they're moving as the group that which is what played my piece, that's what you consider to be the theme. I know yours comes around the beginning, like around the Shire. Yeah, when they're when the Mahabits are frolicking, man. <laughs> yeah, Frolicking freaking hobbits. <laughs> now, I have to say that the entire score is amazing. Um, I enjoy Lord of the Rings, but I'll be honest. There, we can agree. Right, and I'll be honest, I didn't recognize it from the movie, but more so from the pinball game. <laughs> and you're chuckling, but at the same time, when I worked in Des Moines, our off area, which was, it had you know air hockey and computers, and they had a free play pinball machine, and it was the Lord of the Rings pinball machine. Okay. So it played that. It played a whole bunch of different sound bites like they do on modern pinball machines, like Mr. Frodo isn't going anywhere without me and you shall not pass and so on and so forth. And they played this as well as your theme. And this one I heard more often. And when I found myself watching the movies, I found my theme more prevalent. That is why I feel that this is the theme. And your poll may come up that I'm wrong, but at the same time, that is why I feel it is important to me. And it's okay for you to have a wrong opinion. I get one a month. You get like five a month. Wait, what? <laughs> Prove me wrong. I shall do that. <laughs> anyway, let's take a quick poll of our audience. Who thinks that the, the theme song, the Ringo South, which is Luz, is the correct Lord of the Rings theme? Okay, so we, we have half the audience. And who agrees with me that the Lord of the Rings theme is the Lord of the Rings theme? I don't know. And who doesn't have an answer? You cannot abstain. I totally can abstain. What if they're both wrong? Because oh. according to the internet, it's like Breaking of the Fellowship is the theme song. Our audience is doing research while we're talking. That's it. I'm never doing live again. I can I can fuck up on my own. I don't need help from the audience. So I guess at this point, you win because it's two to one and an abstention. So I guess I don't. I didn't have to use my one wrong one for the month. I still think you're wrong, and I think it's people write in, fucking write in and tell Louis wrong. Or okay, don't because it's fun to watch Chad squirm. <laughs> what do you got next? Just move on. All right. Well, we're gonna go back to John. I'm Williams. gonna drink. We're gonna go back to John Williams because he is freaking awesome, and that's the Tie Fighter attack that was from Star Wars: A New Hope, which was Episode Four. Since this is the third 
of the John Williams songs, because you're going to hear another one, at least one more. Um, at, yeah, at least one more. I got one more, at least. You know, I'm not going to go into the musical genius that is John freaking Williams, because it, it, we already know about it. I mean, I'm just going to go more into his music. This particular play, piece included on the soundtrack for the for, uh, original trilogy of the Star Wars movies. As I mentioned before, it's from Episode 4, A New Hope. I can see you out of the corner of my eye. <laughs> for those three people out there who have not seen this movie series, you really need to get out of here right now and go watch because it is a classic sci-fi fantasy series. A space opera, if you will. Okay, now I think you're kind of stretching, but go on. I heard that term. I think it's a bullcrap term, but whatever. Now, moving on, the sequence here comes... You just used it! <laughs> doesn't mean I came up with it. Okay. Anyways. Laser Floyd. <laughs> there you go. Now, the sequence comes from late in the film, where our heroes are trying to escape, and you guessed it, are being attacked by TIE Fighters. What is TIE Fighter? What is a TIE Fighter? It, it's, uh, it's the bad guy's uh, spaceship. But what does TIE stand for? And don't tell me it's a type of food, either. Um, you know The this. Imperial... Empire? Fighter? That's actually not a bad answer, even though it's wrong. <laughs> Does the audience know? TIE is an acronym for Twin Ion Engine. I did not know that. Well, you do now. <laughs> yeah, I'll put that in my databanks. <laughs> <laughs> now, going forward, after a tense battle, the crew comes away victorious, which is pretty obvious because otherwise they wouldn't have Empire or Jedi. And Williams did just a great job making the viewer-listener feel as if you were there and part of the Galactic Civil War against the Empire with the Rebel Alliance. Why don't we go ahead and strap ourselves in and take a quick listen. Now, can you just picture John Williams in front of, you know, they're, they're doing the music for this. He's just up there, and I can just see him arms well, flailing. And... Actually, yes. I've watched some of the videos. In fact, I've watched the video where he... Oh, he it. gets very involved in I mean, what he's doing. I'm surprised the guy doesn't have a stroke, actually, from as much work. And I mean, honestly, he does more workout than I've done at Planet Fitness in a long time. And that's just composing and actually working with the orchestra. Right. And it's amazing because he gets the job done. I wish I could have seen him with the Boston Pops. Now... There's music that has a bit of sadness to it because of the events that unfold before the escape. No spoilers. But then it picks up to an almost inquisitive and waiting theme. No spoilers? You do know this is 2018, right? But there are like four people out there that might be listening going, Oh my god, what? But you know what? Those people had plenty of chance. So go ahead. What happened beforehand? Fine. Ben Kenobi dies. What? No, you're not supposed to tell him that part. You just said to. <laughs> Lion bastard. So the music is just rousing because there's an attack going on. You know, the rebels get attacked by the Empire. And I have to say that there's a lot of recurring themes that are all throughout the Star Wars movies. This track is no different. You hear pieces of it that are played earlier and later in this and Empire and Jedi. And I can honestly say that while I love all three of the soundtracks, this is still my favorite of the three. The original piece has the most nostalgia with it because that's the piece that everybody knows. Everyone knows the Star Wars theme. I mean, I can honestly say, even if you've never seen the movies, you've heard the Star Wars theme. 
the Imperial March. There's several pieces of music that are done that you know. And one of the things I found out that was interesting, and that's that I'm not the only one, obviously, because that while researching this, the A New Hope soundtrack, the whole thing is in the Library of Congress in the National Recording Registry because it's considered culturally, historically, and aesthetically pleasing. Why not all three? But, hey, I'll take the first one. <laughs> so, I know I'm going to get a lot of heat for saying this, but Star Wars is just okay. Yeah, but you're a Trek fan, so I would expect you to say that. I do like this piece of music, though. I mean, I enjoy the movies. I'm just not into the Star Wars as much as a lot of people are. I enjoy them as great sci-fi. It's a movie I like, not a religion I follow. Uh, I don't know. If I could get a real lightsaber, I'd be, I'd be a Jedi. If I could get a real lightsaber, I'd probably cut my arm off. <laughs> That'd be fun to watch, too. <laughs> the nice thing is it would cauterize instantly. Which means reattaching it would never happen. Well, yeah, but at least that wouldn't bleed out. I would so, rather have the chance of bleeding out and having it reattach versus be like, oh, shit, there it goes. Oh, well. <laughs> They're extra anyway. you got ten fingers. You don't need all of them. How often do people cut fingers off in Star Wars? No, it's limbs. <laughs> sure, picky, 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 picky. At least with Star Trek, they just phaser your ass. Which disintegrates you completely into nothingness. Only if it's on the kill. Well, I guess it depends if you're also talking about a phaser or a repulsor. Because True. it all depends on which faction, if you're a Romulan versus... And see, you know, and he's making these goofy-looking faces, but he's supposedly a Trek fan. You're a fair-weather Trek fan, apparently. No, I'm just thinking you're, like, talking something that has nothing to do with what we're doing here. We're, we're talking... We're talking Star Wars, and all of a sudden you're going into phasers and repulsors and... <laughs> Continue on then, my friend. <laughs> okay, I'm done. <laughs> Actually, it's your turn, so continue on, my friend. Before you beat All right, so I... up next we're going to do yet another John Williams theme. No way. Yeah. It's like a theme. We could actually probably do a full episode on just Williams. Oh, absolutely. Just like we could probably do an episode on Danny Elfman or Hans Zimmer. Hans Zimmer would be an amazing one. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm jumping now to the Superman theme. What is more recognizable than the music of Superman? The horns, the cymbals, the cymbal crashes. As a child, there was very little that got me more excited than hearing the Superman theme song. Now, the secret identity of Clark Kent, his girlfriend Lois Lane, and of course, who could forget Jimmy the photographer and Crypto his dog? Oh, and Perry White? Yeah, Perry White. But do you remember Crypto from the cartoons? Mm-hmm. It was, it was a dog that had all the same powers as Superman. He, and... <laughs> They gave him a little fucking cape. Mm -hmm. It was great. But anyway, I love this comic book, this cartoon, this movie, or more particularly, movies. However, as I've grown older and I and I realize that these movies, for the most part, are pretty boring. Mm. It's just again, it's pull time. Who likes Superman? Hands up. Are we? Are we talking? Oh wow. <laughs> That is a view nobody needed. <laughs> he, he She likes Superman. <laughs> now, are we talking the actors who played Superman or the actual comic character? I I'm just in general read, comic never movies. I guess but what I'm saying, though, is I mean, Superman as a, a character right. or Superman as in like Henry Cavill or Christopher Reeve. Right. I mean, no, it's the characters. Okay. All right. So who doesn't like Superman? 
Okay, so we've got a split audience. It, we do, and but I have to ask because we already know why you like Superman. But why don't you like Superman? I don't know. I just think he's. I mean, I know he's classic, but at the same time, it's just like flying capes and saving people, and it's kind of like old-fashioned. He's a Boy Scout. He's he's that's because that's I think what Batman calls him is he calls him the the Boy Scout. Right, right. Which so I can I can completely agree with you on that one because it's it's a very old ideal set, whereas you know nowadays you have like the finger quotes good guys like Wolverine who's technically a good guy but a bad guy at the same yeah, time. Yeah, you kind of get that anti heroes right or the or the gray heroes. Mm-hmm. So, all right. Either way, I love the music still. I mean, regardless of whether or not the movies kind of bore me now, the music is still very good. And I think we should go ahead and take a listen to it. So now I'm going to close this with a little more John Williams information. In 2005, the American Film Institute selected Williams' score to 1977 Star Wars as the greatest American film score of all time. The soundtrack to Star Wars was additionally preserved by the Library of Congress into the National Recording Registry for being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. Obviously, we get our research from a pretty close to the same place. Williams was inducted into the Hollywood Bulls Hall of Fame in 2000 and was a recipient of the Kennedy Center Honors in 2004 and the AFI Lifetime Achievement Award in 2016. Williams composed the score for eight of the top 20 highest-grossing films at the U.S. box office. So, thoughts? There's really not much that you haven't already said. I mean, it's a classic by John Williams, another one that you can't actually even think about Superman without thinking of this march. I mean, really, in any iteration, you know, the TV show, I think, didn't Lois and Clark even use part of this? I think so. Um, so with that, with Returns, with the Cavill one, even though they're different composers, they still harken back to the original music because you cannot think of Superman without thinking of William's score. I absolutely agree. It's just the way it is. And honestly, if you listen to Superman, there's actually the way that he wrote it was in such a way that you can even use the word Superman in the music itself, which was kind of ingenious by him, actually, if you have to get, if you have to think about it. All right. So. What do you got next? The next one, I am going to put this one out here, and this is three notes is all you have to hear. The first three notes of this one, you will know exactly what it is. And before we even do anything, I think we should listen to this so you can tell what three notes I'm talking about. That is Super Mario Brothers done by Koji Kondo. Now, all it takes is those three little first notes, or more if you want to count them, to be transported back to our childhoods and be in the Mushroom Kingdom joining Mario or Luigi on their quest to save Princess Peach from the evil king of the Koopas, Bowser. Shigeru Miyamoto, 
And Koji Kondo laid claim to shaping much of our childhoods, actually. Miyamoto is the creative mind behind Mario, Legend of Zelda, and Donkey Kong. And Koji Kondo composed the music for these classic games. Now, I'm not going to insult your intelligence as a gamer and tell you about the games, but rather about the guy. Now, Kondo worked on sound effects and when he was first hired to Nintendo for in, instead of being for musical composition. His debut creation and first major score for them was Super Mario Brothers. What a way to go out of the gate. That That's the way to start it, I guess. I know, right? You know, and you just blast it out there. Now, you throw in Legend of Zelda and all of their sequels as well as Star Fox, Pilot Wings, Kung Fu, and... Dude, the guy is a classic, which is now retro gaming, I guess, but it's just made in heaven. Throughout the years, he has kept busy with Nintendo and still occasionally composes, such as for 2017's masterpiece, Star uh, Super Mario Odyssey, for the Switch. More often, he's in a sound supervisory role, but I think he's earned it with all the contributions to the medium that he's given us. I mean, hell, what, what else do you have to do to prove yourself? This, no, absolutely. I, I mean, I don't care if you're not a gamer at all. You know this music. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Now, I said here that it's very familiar music interlude on a game that we all probably grew up with, at least if you're in our generation. Right. You know, um, even if you're not, though, I would think that you've heard this classic piece of video game music. I mean, I like it. I really do. It takes me back to a simpler time, a time I could actually play video games without hitting chunks. <laughs> you know... That, that was that was the thing about early video games is I was actually part of the video game world back in the day. It was before 3D. Yeah. Once 3D, once they started rendering in 3D, I, I can't play without, I mean, very few games. There's a WWE game I can play. Right, because it's relatively static except for the characters. Right. And it just, it's, I've tried, I've tried with, you know, I really like the look of Assassin's Creed. So I actually, one year for Christmas, I went out and I bought myself an Xbox, an Assassin's Creed. And I had it for three months, and I couldn't. I just it didn't make sense to me to play for twenty minutes and then go heave chunks and then be feel like crap for the rest of the day. I can understand that. So I don't know. I really like this piece of music. Guy's amazing. I know he's done other stuff. You know, like Zelda. Everybody knows the Zelda music too. So yeah, I think it's a it's a great piece of music. But uh, shall we move on? Absolutely. All right. So up next, I am going to do yet another movie theme because. Seems it's my turn to do movie themes this time. Yeah, there you go. So, if I say there can be only one, does anybody know what I'm talking about? Yes. Highlander. Oh, yes, Highlander. And, of course, it's a big fat lie. <laughs> there was Hunter There was Hunter and a handful of other immortals always in a struggle to win the prize. That was one thing about Highlander that always got to me. You never really knew what it was, but it was the prize. Yeah, the prize is not having your head cut off. Well, that might be it. So Highlander is a film and a television franchise that began with a 1986 fantasy film starring Christopher Lambert, who played Connor McLeod, the Highlander. Born in Glenfinnan in the Scottish Highlands in the 16th century, McLeod is one of a number of immortals. There have been five Highlander movies, two television series, an animated series, an animated movie, an animated Flash movie series, 10 original novels, 19 comic book issues, and various licensed merchandise. Holy crap. I know. Queen contributed music directly to the films Flash Gordon 1980 with Flash as the theme song and Highlander, the original 1986 film, with A Kind of Magic, One Year of Love, and Who Wants to Live Forever, and Hammer to Fall. And the theme, Princes of the Universe, which was also used as the, high, the theme of the Highlander TV series 
from 92 to 98. Let's listen to Princes of the Universe. So, all right, I'll, I'll, I'll put myself out here. I did not think this was the theme of the movie. I thought it was the song, uh, Who Wants to Live Forever? So when you sent me back the cut, I'm like, this isn't what I was looking for. But then I went and I looked a little bit more, and you are correct. This is the quote-unquote theme song. But anyway, so Queen, uh, Queen are a British rock band that formed in London in 1970. Their classic lineup was Freddie Mercury, Brian May, Roger Taylor, and John Deacon. Queen's earliest works were influenced by progressive rock, hard rock, and heavy metal. But the band gradually ventured into more conventional and radio-friendly works by incorporating further styles such as arena rock and pop rock into their music. See, now when I think Queen, I think arena rock. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because that's, that's what it was. Or kind of a swing-type rock, too, like Crazy Little Thing Called Love. Yeah, yeah. But they were all, they were all songs that... You could get in front of an arena crowd, and they would go nuts, and just, you know, it became part of the arena world. In fact, um, some of their songs are still used, like uh, uh, "We Are the Champions" and things mm-hmm. like that, are used by sports teams everywhere. Oh, and I think it would be, it would have been amazing to see them live in concert with the original lineup. Oh yeah, absolutely. But estimates of the record sales range from 150 million to 300 million records, making them one of the world's best-selling music artists. Queen received the Outstanding Contribution to Music to British Music Award from the British Phonographic Industry in 1990. They were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2001, and each member of Queen has composed multiple hit singles, and all four band members were inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame in 2003. And Queen still occasionally tours with, uh, with, with the likes of... Um, Paul Rogers, I know he's, he's yeah, done pa- with... Paul Rogers has done it, and uh, the guy from American Idol... Adam um, Lambert. Adam Lambert. And that one actually pisses me off. Just because he's a gay man doesn't mean you have to throw him on the lead singer. <laughs> Seriously. I mean, because we know that Freddie Mercury wasn't exactly a straight person. No, he was bisexual. And, and that has nothing to do with it, by the way, if people are listening. That is not why I, I hate that. I just don't think Adam Lambert really has the chops to do it. I would agree. I don't think that that's... So, I mean, I get it. It's, it's their band. But what do you think? You know, and... All right. I have to say that initially this song was kind of meh. I mean, around a minute and a half it starts to kick in. That's about where we listen to the clip on this one. It's a good rock, good instrumental, a little operatic. Um, really does have some shiny moments, but overall it's just another Queen song. doesn't really stand out for me, but I'm sure if I'd watched Highlander all the way through, it might make more sense. Yeah. I mean, I've seen Lambert running around with a sword. I've seen him in, what, the parking garage with, like, this gray trench coat on. Uh-huh. And a little bit with Sean Connery. That's really the the most of the movie I've seen. Okay, fair so, enough. Not saying it's a bad movie, not saying it's a bad song, just I don't have much experience with it. Perfect. So why don't you tell us what you got next? All right, next we're going to go with Star Trek The Next Generation, which is it was done by Jerry Goldsmith. Now, Star Trek purists were aghast when they first heard that there was going to be a new show with a new crew and a totally different ship bearing the name of Enterprise. And for some, the horror grew even more so when they found out there'd be a Klingon and an android on the bridge. What is the world coming to? 
the fans' concerns were for naught because out of Gene Roddenberry's grand vision was born Star Trek The Next Generation, arguably the best Trek series ever produced. Arguably, so if you want to say something, great. If not, then I'll continue. I will let you continue. <laughs> All right. <laughs> now, for such an event, it just needed an equally grand opening theme. Now, Roddenberry tapped longtime composer Jerry Goldsmith, who took the theme from 1979's Star Trek motion picture that he also composed and modified it. He sped it up and added more power to it and majesty, and that's just where we got it. Why don't we go ahead and take a quick listen to Star Trek Next Generation. Now, for all intents and purposes, and a lot of people probably didn't know this, he covered himself. He did the original song, and then he just made it new, and it worked. Now, it's better than the original, and I'm going to have to include the motion picture in that. Let's, oh. let's face it. Star Trek, the motion picture, was a complete snooze fest and really lost a lot of grounds and fans. Unless, of course, you really get off on... 45 minutes of ship porn and 45 minutes of horrible movie. And that's what it was. I mean, it, I mean, it was visually pretty impressive for the 70s, but overall it was... A... It's like, how many, how many different angles can you see the Enterprise from? Exactly. Now, Paramount decided to make a sequel. Yay. Just when I think you couldn't possibly be any dumber, you go and do something like this. And totally redeem yourself! <laughs> and redeem themselves they did, as the sequel was Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan, which is one, if not the best, Star Trek original crew movies. Wrong, but go on. I know which one you have, that's why I said one of, if not the. <laughs> Even though Star Trek and its spin-offs were huge, Jerry Goldsmith wasn't just shoehorned there. Between TV and movies, he was quite prolific from the 50s until just before passing in 2004, giving us The Man from U.N.C.L.E., In Like Flint, Patton, The Omen, which won him an Oscar, First Blood, and Total Recall, among many others. Jerry Goldsmith is one of the most nominated composers in, Amer in Academy Awards history and the most nominated composer with only one win, which personally I feel is a shame because he's very underrated. I love this music. It's very. It really just kind of gets you going and... It, it just works for the show because if you remember the opening, it just had the ship kind of floating there and then all of a sudden it just kicks in the warp drive and that's when the music kicks in. It, it just worked. Right. Now, as you said, this is the theme from the movie First Contact. Now, I oh, love yeah, Star yeah. Trek and especially The Next Generation and First Contact was a great flick. Oh, yeah. It was the first non-TOS you know, TOS ship movie. It, no, it was the first. No, Generations was. Generations, but it had both crews. It exactly. Had so so this first contact solo. was the was the first solo one, and I mean it's the story of Zephram Cochran and the work uh, that he did to discover warp drive, how he wasn't the hero everybody had made him out to be, just a guy who drank a little too much, was scared shitless to actually go to warp drive, and everything else that took him from being that hero to just being a normal guy who happened to get lucky and. You know, 
happened to do his his warp jump at just at the time that the Vulcans were passing by. And the best part is, is he makes it out of a weapon of mass destruction. Yes, yeah, because he makes it out of an old uh, ICBM. Yeah. yeah. So it's I loved it. I loved the music. I loved the the movie, and I think everything about it. And like you said, that original movie, the motion picture, is horrible. I mean, it's in the collection of every Star Trek fan. Well, it has to be. Right, but it's just horrible. And like I said, you were wrong about Wrath of Khan being the best one. It's actually the Search for Spock, which is the Bullshit, third movie. Okay. Hey, you're you're allowed to be wrong on occasion. So I don't know. I don't really have anything else to say about it, but I just really love this piece of music and this movie. All right. Well, why don't we go ahead and go to your next one? All right. So one more movie theme. Uh, honestly, I do have something besides movie themes here. But I am going to do one last movie theme here, and that is uh, 1989's Batman theme by Danny Elfman. Now, I fucking love Batman. I am surprised of all the tattoos that you have that you don't have a Batman logo. I have thought about it. But instead you went with? Well, this time I, I got a new skull. No, you had Superman, don't you? Not anymore. Oh, well. <laughs> okay. So... It's uh, the, the theme that Danny Elfman created for the 1989 movie Batman is absolutely amazing. The movie has got probably my vote for the best Bruce Wayne slash Batman, and that's Michael Keaton. Who who here has the 1989 movie? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's one of those classic movies. Though I'm praising that movie, I do like them all. The cheesy 1967 movie with Adam <laughs> West as Batman. Absolutely. You know, and with... Oh, who the hell was it? Uh, the Joker. Uh, Cesar Romero. Cesar Romero, who would not shave his mustache, so his Joker had this nasty, clay-clogged uh, yeah, mustache they, they of white. Yeah, put the clown makeup over his facial hair. Yeah, it was it amazing. Is, seriously, look at it. It is ridiculously hilarious. And, of course, the newest one of the movies was Christian Bale. It's phenomenal. Oh, and Ben Affleck. And I'll get to that. You said the newest, but that's not the newest. Well, I suppose not technically. Continue But on. they haven't had a solo Batman movie with Affleck yet. True, I suppose. They did the Batman versus Superman. Right. Yet there will always be a soft spot in my heart for Michael Keaton, Kim Basinger, and Jack Nicholson. So let's take a listen to the 1989 piece of music. Daniel Robert Elfman is an American composer, singer, songwriter, and record producer. Elfman is best known for his work scoring films and television shows, in particular his frequent collaborations with director Tim Burton, and for being the lead singer and songwriter for the band Oingo Boingo from 1974 to 1995. You're laughing, but that's actually a real band. Yep. <laughs> they were just as ridiculous as their name. Yes, they were. It was not a good band. But in 1976, Elfman entered the film industry as an actor. In 1980... He scored his first film, Forbidden Zone, directed by his older brother, Richard Elfman. Among his honors are four Academy Award nominations, a Grammy for Batman, an Emmy for Desperate Housewives, six Saturn Awards for Best Music, the 2002 Richard Kirk Award, and the Disney Legend Award. Quick poll. Who liked Adam West as Batman? Okay. I'm not sure I ever saw more than like two minutes of Adam West. Michael Keaton. All right. George Clooney. Val Kilmer, 
All right, how about Christian Bale? And of course, the newest Batman, Ben Affleck. I'm actually. I kind of liked Affleck. I've been impressed by Affleck. It scared the shit out of me when they announced Ben Affleck as because I'm used to seeing him in Clerks talking about sucking dick and you know all this <laughs> other stuff, and it's just like you know and fisting and chasing Amy and. It, it terrified me as almost as much as it terrified me when I heard that Nicolas Cage might be Superman. That was kind of scary, and I'm a Nick Cage fan, and I'm like, uh. Yeah. It almost happened in yeah, Batman or Superman Returns. National treasure. I would agree oh, with that. Yeah. yeah. Or, or, or the gone, gone with. That, that makes me want just the idea of him as Superman makes me laugh. Well, he's such so, a huge fan that he named, I think he named his kid Cal L, didn't he? He did. <laughs> he did. Um, and, it, and it almost happened, and thank God, I think it was actually National Treasure 2 that kept him from being bad. Or Superman. I think so, because I think Kevin Smith is like, uh, no. Yeah. So, anyway, uh, what do you got to say about the Superman? Or, I mean, sorry, the Batman theme? You know, it is one of the many collaborations that you mentioned out there, and I have to say, I think it's one of his most successful. Um, in 1989, and after the success of Beetlejuice, Burton tried his hand at a superhero movie and got his buddy to do the music. Guess what? It worked. Elfman's theme did such a great job introducing us to Batman that it wasn't all puns and silliness like the 67 version that everybody recognizes this. Now, the theme was so recognizable that when they did the Batman animated series in 1992, they even used Danny Elfman's score. And if that doesn't say that it's got staying power, I don't know what would. I don't know. I, yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, when they when it crosses over from a movie to a cartoon or through multiple movies, as it did with the, all the movies of the 80s and 90s for Batman, mm-hmm. it shows that it's recognizable and that people like it. Right, right. Because, you know, if it's something that wouldn't really work, they would use something different. Because if you remember, let's go back to Superman, for example. They, obviously, the... John Williams' one didn't come out till later, but when they did a newer Superman series, they could have easily used that, but they decided not to. Right, right. I don't know why, but... Well, because it calls back to it. They at least did that. They called back to it. I think probably out of respect for Christopher Reeve, who might have passed away or was paralyzed at right, the time. Right, right. But it, it still shows that respect by calling back to it. They're, right. they're like, we are updating, so we need something new, but we still want to call back to that earlier time. That's why using kind of a reworked version of it, I think, is the best way to do it. Yeah, absolutely. Now, unless we have anything further, I'm going to go with my next one. All right, let's do it. All right, the next one here, and this is going to be something that I know that <coughs> I know that Nikki, you watch. I know Chad, you watch, and you might you um, might watch as well. And that's the Big Bang Theory. Sometimes, yeah. And it's by the Bare Naked Ladies. And a little history: Bare Naked Ladies, and before you get the wrong idea, are a bunch of Canadian men. Oh, <laughs> damn it! <laughs> are a folk rock band that have been recording and performing since Indie Inception in the late 80s. They were way more popular in Canada than in the States, but, which kind of makes sense if they're a Canadian band. Um, but that all changed when they released their 1988 album, Stunt, which was their Amazing highest, fucking album. Exactly. It's their highest U.S. charting album, which included the hits One Week and It's All Been Done. That success propelled their career forward and the Bare Naked Ladies into mainstream with the U.S., now, fast forward a little bit, and executive producers Chuck Lorre and Bill Prady asked the co-lead singer Ed Robertson, after hearing him freestyle rap about the origins of the universe, to write a theme song for his new show he had coming out. He agreed, and the rest is history. No pun intended. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, let's go ahead and we'll take a quick listen for any of those who haven't actually watched the show for The Big Bang Theory. 
Our whole universe was in a hot, dense state that nearly 14 billion years ago expansion started. Wait, the Earth began to cool, the autotrophs began to drool, Neanderthals developed tools, we built a wall. We built the pyramids, math, science, history, unraveling the mystery that all started with a big bang. Now, let's face it, nerdy stuff has always been popular. Maybe not with the general public, but there's always been a niche market. We almost had to keep it hidden to a degree to hang out with our own kind, and nearly exclusively when it came to stuff that was considered geek taboo, or geek chic, as was mentioned before. Then with the release of the 2007 smash comedy The Big Bang Theory, suddenly it was acceptable to be a nerdy person. It wasn't even only acceptable, but it was even cool. We didn't have to hide our geeky, nerdy things like we did, like comic collecting or playing Dungeons and Dragons, video games, being good at science or bad at sports, which can be any of us to a degree. Go sports, go! <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Yay, sports! The list goes on. Now, not only was it that it showed not only those things, but it also showed that uh, corroborated theme that really wasn't put forward until like 1984's Revenge of the Nerds, and that's that nerds could get girls too. <laughs> Seriously, I mean, between this and the aforementioned Weird Al song, White and Nerdy, which came out a year earlier, proving that the man is on the cutting edge, it's proven that it is so cool to be a, a geek and a nerd. You're trying to convince me because I'm right there with you, brother. <laughs> we, we talked about that, what, about four episodes ago? Yeah, something like that. Four or five? Now, along with the switch also came with a positive change, and that's the term that geek or nerd no longer held the same negative connotation that they once did. You know, back in the day as a kid, you felt horrible if you were called out as being a nerd or a geek and, you know, or a dork or whatever the case was. But now we put it on our chest like a badge. You know, it's like, yeah, I'm a nerd. Exactly. And, you know, and unlike hipsters, being nerdy is so much more accepting. <laughs> yeah, I like nerdy stuff before you, but I'm not going to look down my nose, but rather embrace the fact that you converted to the nerd side. Instead of being like, oh, well, I'm so much better because I liked it before you did. You know, screw that. I like vintage clothes and badly cut Oh, beards. exactly. I played D&D &D way before you did. Instead of that, nerds are like, well, hell yeah, we could use a, we could use a healer. Come on over. <laughs> what? You're new to the game? You should play a cleric. Oh, screw you. <laughs> Anyways, no, I love this song. I've always liked the Bare Naked Ladies band. Um, I actually just like Bare Naked Ladies. That's why I included band in there because the other one's kind of a great big duh. Um, and... It's, it's an entertaining song, and everybody knows the words. It's not sung too fast that you can't sing along, and which we did during the break. Yep. And it, the show is entertaining. I'm, I'm not 100% positive. I like where it's going now, but it's still an entertaining show all the way around. Well, you know, now it's in its, what, 11th season? Something like that, yeah. But, like, everybody's so, getting married off and having kids and yeah. everything else. You just don't know how much longer it can go. Well, it's jumped the shark at this point. Now we'll see how many, how many seasons it goes before they kind of... It dies out. They've got right. at least one more concerning the contract now. Are they? And Young Sheldon is actually not that bad. The spinoff that they did? I have not seen that yet. I'm not going to give anything away, but it's about Young Sheldon. Oh, um, and, oh no! <laughs> no, it's a pretty entertaining show. There's no laugh track to it, which is different than any yeah. of the other ones. Um, but you actually meet up with his parents, which ironically enough, his mom is played by... Um, Laurie Metcalf, Metcalf's sister. Sister, yeah. So, right, it's, it's his mom in Big Bang Theory's sister plays his mom in Young Sheldon. And then you actually meet his dad, his brother, his sister, and then you meet Meemaw, which – Well, you, by, do, you do meet Meemaw in – But you meet her when series. she's younger, and okay. she's played by Annie Potts. 
Oh, nice. It's which she played Janine in Ghostbusters. She was in quite a few different movies. Yeah. That's just the main one that comes she's up. She's one of those characters that every Designing time you see Designing Women. Remember that Designing show? Designing Women. But she's one of those characters where you, you don't necessarily like go looking for an Annie Potts movie because there isn't an Annie Potts movie. But she's a like, great supporting. Yeah, all of a sudden you're like watching a movie, you're like, that's the chick from Ghostbusters. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, it's it's a very entertaining show. Again, not sure how long it's gonna go, but it's it's worth a watch. So bottom line, I enjoy this. The show, the song, what do you got? Well, I said the music is fun, the show is funner. Yes, I said funner. You asshole, you know I hate that word. I know. It's basically me and my friends if we were highly paid scientists. As far as I know, none of my friends are highly paid scientists or, for that matter, highly paid anythings. Or have <laughs> doctorates. Well, that's true. Scott does have a master's degree. So, Scott's are Wallowitz. <laughs> <laughs> now, I love the show. I mean, because it's absolute stereotypes of different forms of geeks and nerds. Sheldon, Leonard, Raj, Howard, Penny, Bernadette, and Amy. You know, the chemistry on that set makes the entire show, the entire group of nerdisms work. And it's down to earth, too. It really is. You know, with 11 seasons under their belt, honestly, I could go for a few more. I agree with you. The show is kind of losing something in the later seasons. But I don't want it to go away quite yet. No, no. I, I'd like to see a lot of the the loose ends tied up because regardless of what you think, there are a couple out there, not a ton, but a few, that would like to see completed that being said it just until it dies out a real death instead of just being unceremoniously shut down right i honestly the thing i would love to see is amy and sheldon get married and have a kid i want to see that interaction of sheldon with a baby that would that would be interesting that would be very interesting because i mean as you know anybody who's watching the show already knows they're actually doing wedding planning for sheldon and amy yep um and they're howard and bernadette have their second kid on the way. Well, I haven't started watching season eleven yet, so that's nothing new. No, um, I know it's and and Raj is perpetually single. Yep, yep. And Penny I can't and, imagine why. You yeah. know, when you really think about the Raj character, when it comes to women, he is like the worst misogynistic bastard in the world. He is kind of a dink that way, but that's kind of his weird little charm, if you want to put it that way. I suppose and if then, you consider that charm. And then Leonard and Penny are just doing standard weird marital stuff that yeah. we all do. So Yeah. No, a lot of times I see the arguments between Leonard and Penny and I'm like, had that one. <laughs> yep. Oh, that one's coming. <laughs> didn't, 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 or else you look at your significant other, you're like, wait, didn't do that one already? Oh, yeah, okay. I, I see how this is going to end. Let's see how they write it. Right, yeah. <laughs> Let's see how Hollywood thinks this is going to play out. Exactly. So, all right, what's your next one? All right, so the next one, we're going to walk into the world of role-playing. Okay. So what can I say about the next song? It's comedy and it's geekery, specifically D&D geekery, all rolled up into one. The song takes a humorous look at gamers and the stereotypes that go with it, from talking about their dungeon master being a bastard or the dungeon bastard. So uh, I thought you would re re respond to that more, but to never having kissed a girl. That's an old stereotype because we all know that there is just as many girls into gaming these days as guys. Well, and if you remember what, what Lewis said on Revenge of the Nerds, all jocks think about is sports. All nerds think about is sex. That's why they're good kissers. Right. <laughs> and honestly, I think the I've, – I've been in the industry playing games for a long time, and I think it's actually better because women are part of it now. 
Oh, absolutely. There's there's a couple of reasons that come right off the top of my head. Number one, I don't have to sit across the table from Yulu and try to have like a romantic talk with a girl character, you know, because that gets a little creepy. But we've all done it. We've all been sitting at the table and you're like, oh, I got it. As a DM and you're like, oh, I'm going to go buy a prostitute or whatever. And I'm like, okay, so now i got to become a prostitute for Lou. And <laughs> that's a little creepy. But anyway, let's take a listen to D&D by Stephen Lynch. I got a big broad sword made out of cardboard. And that stereo's a pumping zeppelin. It's that time of the night, we turn on the black light Let the dungeons and the dragons begin It's D&D Fighting with the legends of yore It's D&D Never kissed a lady before Nope! Woo! So Stephen Andrew Lynch is an American comedian, musician, and Tony Award-nominated actor who is known for his songs mocking daily life and popular culture. Lynch has released three studio albums and three live albums along with a live DVD. He has appeared in two Comedy Central Presents specials and starred in the Broadway adaptation of The Wedding Singer. Stephen released a brand, a new double disc uh, studio and live album, Lion, on November 13, 2012. Most recently, Stephen released a live concert video called Hello Kalamazoo, available on Vimeo. Anybody besides Lou and I obviously ever heard the song before? Okay, so what are your thoughts on this song? I was introduced to Stephen Lynch when I was in college, and it was the superhero album. Okay. And it had that, it had the divorce song, it had um, just uh, D&D and everything else, and it was... He did it have special on it, because it that is a... absolutely had special, but it was a hidden track. Oh, really? Yes, because it was, they played the one song, and then they, like, like maybe three minutes of silence, and then it played the special song. Okay. And it's... Just horrible. In fact, he even prefaces this song with, if you're easily offended, get the fuck out right now. And that's going to tell you something, because if you listen to his other songs, if that's going They're to They're edgy and offensive, but special ed is just... Mm-hmm. And he's got such a... He's got such a good voice. Like, you'd expect him to be like a choir boy type thing. Yep. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he's talking about, oh, wow. Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoy Stephen Lynch. Um... My sister got to see him live in Indy. I wish I could have gone. Um, I think this song was way better than anything else when it comes to nerd culture, specifically Dungeons and Dragons. We're not all girlfriendless virgins, and there are plenty of them out there, however. Um, rather than playing on the fact that it's a serious tone, and Lynch kind of makes more of a joke out of it. Yeah. He just makes a joke. Instead of ragging on us as a culture of nerds, he kind of embraces it and kind of pokes a little bit of fun, but you know he's poking fun. Right. I could see Stephen Lynch sitting around across the table from us playing D&D. You know, there's a lot of celebrities that do. I mean, oh, yeah. Vin Diesel. Vin Diesel. Groot. You know, I am Groot. In fact, I guess he played a game where he, ta- he played like an ant type character. Oh, my God. And he was Groot. I would have paid anything to be sitting in on that D and D session. Well, there was actually there was there was about a year ago he had this thing on uh, Facebook and you could enter a contest to be and he picked I don't remember if it was five or six people from Facebook in your posts. He would pick you to do a Skype version and he was going to run a four hour game. That's awesome. And I and I entered. I didn't win obviously because you would have heard about it. But uh, <laughs> it was it was like I'm like that is so freaking cool. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's I, I enjoy D and enjoy Stephen Lynch, and I think he did a great job with the song. Excellent. All right, let's move on to your last one for this. All right, my last one is going to be a video game one again because I like to play video games. 
No, and this himself. One, this was it. Nothing. Why? Yeah, like you don't. But anyways, moving on. Dragonborn by the uh, from the Elder Scrolls Skyrim by Jeremy Sewell. If I'm saying the guy's name right. Now, Iowan, Iowan composer Jeremy Sewell has been composing music for major productions since the early 90s. His first major work was in his working with Square, the company that made Final Fantasy. Okay. And he composed the soundtrack for Secret of Evermore, which was an amazing Super Nintendo role-playing game. He did a bunch of children's themes, and his next big release was the 1997 real-time strategy game Total Annihilation, which won him a ton of critical acclaim. He continued working with RPG games and worked on such classics as Icewind Dale and Baldur's Gate, which we all know that Chad's played. And hates. And failed at. Fucking chickens. <laughs> he also did branch into fantasy, working on many of the Harry Potter games, as well as one of the best Star Wars games ever made, and that's 2003's uh, Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic. Do, you know, Taking over for Williams, because obviously Williams is the king of Star Wars. From there, he went to work with Bethesda and got involved with the Elder Scrolls series, starting with Morrowind and then Oblivion. He did such a great job that the higher-ups gave, gave him the nod to score Elder Scrolls V, Skyrim, and we arrive right here at this masterwork. Let's go ahead and take a quick listen to Dragonborn. This is considered the main theme for Skyrim. Not only does it include a powerful and majestic orchestra driving it, but Soul included a 30-member choir singing in Draconian about you, the player, who assumes the role of Dovahkiin, which is the dragonborn of legend. It is you who are destined by blood and fate to destroy the world eater, Alduin. This is an incredibly fitting piece of music to get your blood pumping as you're readying yourself for battle to literally save the world. Now, while the whole soundtrack is amazing, this particular piece is one of my favorites. They couldn't have picked a better piece for the theme, and even though the game is seven years old, it's still played by gamers now just as much as it was back in the day. It's been so critically lauded that it was remastered for the PlayStation 4 and Xbox One in 2016, and just recently released as a remaster for the Nintendo Switch just over a month ago in November of 2017, giving a whole new batch of gamers, those non-PC Sony or Microsoft people, a chance to immerse themselves in the sprawling continent of Tamriel in the land of Skyrim. Now, even though I never played Oblivion or Morrowind, I think I came in at the right time. My first game I ever played was Skyrim, and I loved it. I've played this game, I put, probably put maybe 300 hours into the game in itself, and that's just on one version of it. That's on the 360 one. I put another 200 in to my Xbox One version, and that's just one playthrough. I like my video games. That's a lot of time, dude. It, it is. Now... One last thing about Jeremy Sewell, the fact he's composed so much amazing music for games and has worked on a couple Star Wars games makes the fact that he's known in the industry as the John Williams of video game music a bit more fitting. I can't think of a more appropriate accolade or greater honor to be than to be compared to John Williams. I, I would agree with that. Now, I've heard of Skyrim, but due to issues I have with video games and hurling, I have never played it. Um, the music is epic in scope, and I like it. I really did. I really enjoyed this piece of music. Uh, you had sent me also the full version of it, and I really enjoyed that. 
Um, the, you know, there are times I really wish I could play video games for hours on end. But then I stop and I think to myself, where would I get the extra time? I have no free time. See, so yeah, you, you decide to sleep instead. Well, yes, sleep is important when you're as old as me. <laughs> he is an old bastard. So, anyway, I, I really enjoyed it. I don't have much to say about it because I don't really know anything about the game. So, you know, should I wrap this thing up? Yeah, go ahead and give us your last one. All right, so my last one is actually, it's called Hail to the Geek, and it's by a band that no longer exists called Deaf Pedestrians. I don't think I could have been happier than the day I found this song. It's a fun song about just being a geek. Let's listen to it for a second. I play Dungeons and Dragons. I got a 13th level halfling fighter thief. Got seven hectare on the backstab. Sometimes you know it's good to be a geek. Well, it's good to be a geek. It's good to play the freak. It's good to come on. Now, in this song, in that clip, he talks about playing in Dungeons and Dragons. He talks about just how it's good to be a geek. About <laughs> I do find it humorous, the line he uses, comb his mullet once every other week. Now, I had a mullet back in the day. I think we all did. <laughs> and you could not go that long without combing your mullet. Oh, my God, no. You went like that, you'd end up having to use like a, a pick and like drive it through with a steam iron. You would have, you would have went like from mullet to... To having, you know, dreadlocks, man. You'd, you'd have been Jamaican all of a sudden. Now, that was a horrible Jamaican accent. And but, it would smell just as bad. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, but the song also talks about other forms of geekery, from video games to certain types of clothing, uh, which were not so much now, but at one time they were really kind of considered, you know, if you wore, like, uh, different certain types of shoes or, you know, things like that. So I really enjoy it for that, uh, but... It says stuff like, it's good to play the Wii, then stay up painting miniatures until 2 or 3. You know, what do you guys think? What Have you guys ever heard this before? I know I know, Nikki has, but have you ever heard the song before? Okay, it's a great song. I mean, it's, it's done by a band, a progressive band uh, called Deaf Pedestrians, and they were based in Dallas, Texas. Their first major label album, And Other Distractions, was released with Virgin Records on February 12, 2008. They combined elements of punk rock, alternative rock, country music, southern rock, hard rock, and heavy metal. What do you got to say? Uh, this is a typical alt-rock sound between the guitar and the singer's wannabe angsty sound. I can't really get behind these guys. They go back and forth between talking about nerdy and things like Dungeons and & Dragons and Star Trek and stuff that's just about being unpopular, such as having a shitty bad mustache or of adolescence or the mullet years. I get what they're trying to say, but I think they're being a bit condescending about it. Um, they're saying that being a geek means being a freak, a creep, and no one will ever call them. Not cool, bros. I mean, I think Stephen Lynch did it in a funny, a funny way, and these guys are just kind of being dicks about it. <laughs> okay, you're allowed that opinion, I guess. So let's go ahead and wrap this whole thing up. We got the uh, the uh, trivia question. We do, which I think you've already answered because of your research. Yes, but let me do it, and uh, I feel good about myself. Actually, what's funny is I have a little bit of extra, a couple extra notes on it, too. So according to the AFI, American Film Institute's 100 Years of Film Scores, which John Williams score was ranked as the greatest American film score of all time? The film score from Star Wars, A New Hope. Right. Now, the list was comprised of 25 film scores, and John Williams was the only composer to have three selections in the 25. 
Okay. He actually had Jaws at number six, and E.T. was number 14. No, I get the E.T. thing. Jaws, I can't get behind that. It was simple, but at the same time, it was simply terrifying. How many people didn't want to go swimming after they saw that movie? I didn't want to go swimming before I saw that movie. <laughs> well, let's be fair. With us, swimming is more floating. Okay. Because, <laughs> you know, we were kind of like a weeble wobble when it comes to the ocean, especially saltwater ocean. I tried diving in the ocean one time. Didn't work. Like Between... hitting the tabletop? No, it's more on the lines of being a chubby guy and saltwater. Those two things don't mix. You can't go underwater to save your life. I would not drown in the ocean because I couldn't get under fucking water. No, but you'd be eaten first because the shark would see you and you'd look like a fat seal. <laughs> I'm not going to argue that, but I wouldn't be wearing all black. Well, it doesn't have to be. I mean, sharks are colorblind. Yeah, I suppose. But Although, okay, I have a funny story about that, actually. <laughs> all right. So the time I did go to the ocean to go swimming in the Gulf of Mexico, this was back in 2003. And I went down with one of my best friends, and his family has land down there. Okay. So I'm out, and I'm diving for shells. And, again, the reason the buoyancy factor is going to play a, a, uh, an important thing here. So I'm diving down, and my skin, you know how your skin gets soft when you're, you have too much water on it, right? So I'm diving for a shell, and I get a grip on it, but it's too buried in the sand. So my whole body comes up, and it slices my finger wide open. So, you know, in Jaws... Dun, dun. Dun, dun. Exactly. You know, you know in Jaws how they show like the poof of the red blood? Yeah. That's exactly what it looked like. And so I'm kind of kind of bleeding it out a little bit, you know, squeezing your finger or whatever. And I'm like, they just mentioned that there were sharks spotted nearby in the last two weeks. So I busted ass to get out of the out of the water. And here I'm passing a couple of little kids paddling by and I squeeze my finger a few more times figuring, hey, it's, it's appetizers. And... <laughs> And, and got out of the water, and my friend who was standing at the showers, because along next to the ocean, they always have little showers to wash the salt water off. He's like, I figured something was wrong, so I went and squeezed my finger and literally shot it about six inches out. He's like, that's pretty gross. And I said, yeah, you want to see it again? And I did it again. And, but, yeah, so that was my fun story about being in the ocean and bleeding with sharks nearby. All right, so if you guys want to reach out to us, let us know. If you like this episode or any of our other episodes, or whether you hate them too, I mean, we we'll take constructive criticism at any point. Yeah, we might not have to take it well, but we can take it. <laughs> you can reach out to us. There's a few ways you can reach out to us. First, you can find us on Gmail. Send us an email at musicchallengepodcast at gmail.com. You can you can send us a note there. We will get back to you. Otherwise, on Facebook at musically challenged podcast. Or at POI Network. Get us a note there. We'll get back to you there as well. And there's one other avenue. And what would that be, Lou? The other avenue is Twitter. We are on the Twitter. So if you want to say something good or bad or send us a playlist, 14 songs by 14 different artists. And please have the music ready in case we need it. Um, be if, be uh, be well and send us a playlist. And be part of the show. There you go. I just spit, I couldn't remember what I was going to say. So, yeah, if you want to be part of the show and send us that list, great. And the address to send it there is at mcpodcast17. That's mcpodcast17. Send us some love. Send us some hate. Send us some music. We'll be more than happy to talk to you. And with that, I want to thank everybody for listening. I want to thank our audience for being here and sticking through us, even with some technical difficulties. And, we're, you know, can we call you by name? So, Ariel, thank you for joining. Nikki, thank you for joining. And with that, we will talk to you next week. Absolutely. You have been listening to a program from the Point of Insanity Network. 
visit us at poigamestudio.podbean.com for more shows. Follow us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at POI Game Studio.